I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Tiffany Gardner, the CEO of Reflect Us, a nonpartisan coalition working to increase the number of women in office, as well as the diversity of women in elected positions. We take a look back at the 2020 election cycle and how women candidates fared overall in their elections. Tiffany also has some sage advice about how we should think about the candidacies of women who don't necessarily share our political points of view. And here's a hint, it's all about gender parity. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Tiffany Gardner. Well, Tiffany Gardner, welcome to the podcast. So welcome back. It's great to be back. Well, you know, the last time we spoke was a few days before the election, right? And we were talking about the record number of women that were running for office and women of color, of course. And I'm going to ask if you were satisfied with the outcome, but I don't want to look over the fact that, you know, the biggest win, of course, for women and women of color was Kamala Harris, you know, as VP. So what were some of the most notable wins for you? What stood out for you? You know, I I have to say, um, definitely Kamala Harris, Madam Vice President. That goes without saying a history-making, breaking moment for all of us. And I think coming out of the election cycle of last November showed all of us, no matter what side you find yourself on, the just the transformative power of the United States and that the possibilities are limitless, right? So her election, her being vice president, I think resonates or can resonate for all of us for different reasons and make us very proud of um, of the country that we live in, knowing that anything is possible and anything is possible for anyone. So I would have to say that that's my highlight. Um, also, it was an incredible, incredible, incredible year for women. Um, we saw a record number of women running, which is always good and is not something we can take for granted. So women actually running. And then we saw a record number of wins um, on both sides of the aisle. As you know, we're a nonpartisan group, so we celebrate all of those wins. And then after the election, of course, after the inauguration, we're seeing a cabinet that is beginning to look more like the United States. There's a lot of gender representation and women representation in the cabinet. So a lot to feel very hopeful about. And so you and I were talking about this before, and I was thinking about this offline. I was like, how can I ask Tiffany this question without, you know, getting her in trouble? <laughs> you know, saying anything I'd regret. But you you and I both, I know, well, you know, you and I both know that a lot of conservative women won too. So it was a night for a good night for women overall, right? And I'm a Democrat. I'm a liberal person. And it's a good night for women. But how do we make sure on both sides of the aisle that the policy and the philosophy of the women. I know that they're going to differ, you know, obviously, because you have conservatives versus Democrats or liberals, right? How do we make sure that we get, you know, people in office who, you know, have basic requirements, have like a basic, I guess, respect for the law, you know, like they don't want to bring guns on the floor of, of Congress? You know, I, I think um, th- that's a fair question. It is a fair question. And I think that is a question that all of us, um, especially in this moment, historical and political moment, are asking ourselves is our leadership and how do we choose our leadership? You know, I think that there is a responsibility for all office holders to uphold, obviously, the Constitution and our collective values. And we do have those. What, what we are seeing more and more is that, you know, as a whole, as more women are elected, there is more bipartisan and across the aisle work that does get done. And that, that's it's just it bears it out. Right. Um, women, when they are um, elected, they introduce far more bills. They pass far more legislation and their bills, by and large, are not just women centered. 
but they're centered on the whole family and thereby on the whole society. So do we have individuals um, <laughs> within those numbers that could do better? Clearly we do on the right and on the left. And I think that's just human nature. But I think what's important for us, and at least for us here at Reflect Us in the work and in the field that we're trying to build, is to understand that you know those individuals and few individuals notwithstanding the greater value there is to having a representative democracy and in that way the real need to have more women in political leadership you know I'll just close by saying if you look at the numbers although we had some big wins in November and inauguration day was truly a historic moment we're far far from there our senate is only 26 percent women our house 23 percent and then when you go to the state legislators it gets even grimmer and with our local government which really impacts women's lives I mean we can look at cable news and see what's happening in on the Capitol and feel like that's where all our focus should be. But when you think about what's really impacting day-to-day life for people, it's local government. And that's woefully, woefully underrepresented when it comes to women's representation. So again, I think I'm saying let's not lose the forest for the trees, so to speak, and acknowledge that we can have bad actors or people who can act better on both sides, but that there's a much larger issue that we need to be concerned about. You are so right. And I knew you'd have the perfect answer for that. So (laughs) I want to go back and say that, you know, to be fair, we're talking about women but you can have bad actors, you can have, you know, men or women. So I don't want to say that I'm unfairly, you know, focused on the women, right? So I just want to make that point. But since we're talking about women wins, you know, there have been a few who've been in the headlines. And that just brings that that question to mind. But we are far, far from parity. And that's where we need to focus and getting more women elected to office. I mean, let's just look at the founding of our country, right? And so when you had those political parties, or even when they even before they became political parties, when you had a lot of the um, the back and forth and the arguing and the very questionable tactics, I mean, you even had duels, right? <laughs> and at no point did everyone say, or did anyone say, wow, this democracy thing really isn't working here. Let's go back to tyranny, right? So, so I just want to be careful that in this moment when we talk about certain political leaders that are women maybe not behaving as we want them to, that the answer then isn't, well, we don't need women in these leadership roles, right? So let's not make that burden even higher for women, right, than we have for the past, you know, 300 years of this republic for men. Right. You know, one of the things that I was excited about that we've talked about before is the fact that not only do we have, you know, more women in office, but we see a broader array of people from different different places in our society, different places in our culture, different yeah. you know, economic backgrounds. You know, I know Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, when she was first elected, she talked about, you know, her background, you know, working as a bartender. Mm-hmm. You know, and we had Stacey Abrams talking about her, you know, her debt, her student loan debt and her you know, credit card debt. Yeah. And I think one of the ones for me, I think Cori Bush also. Mm-hmm. I mean, do we see more wins in that regard? Or how do you think that's going in that direction? You know, I'm going to be honest, that is the area where I'm less, I'm less congratulatory. I think we have a lot of way to go when it comes to getting working class people generally, and in particular working class women elected. Now, I think what's happening is that I'm glad these stories are coming out more and more. Um, for now, they feel more like they're an anomaly, or more like the unicorn that somehow made it through, um, or that shooting star. And if we're really going to have a representative democracy, they need to be much more the norm, or if not the norm, at least expect it so that it's not such a surprise that someone like a Cori Bush or a Stacey Abrams or anyone else for that matter was able to not just run, but um, win elected office being from a working class or even a middle class background. If, if we look at the figures and the figures bear that out, both at the state and the, and the federal level, at this point, our elected officials are 
pretty wealthy people <laughs> on a whole. And that doesn't say that wealthy people can't legislate. That doesn't say that wealthy people can't make good laws. But again, if we're going to have a representative democracy, we need to make sure that our leadership is reflecting the lived, the lived experiences of all Americans. And that is one area. There are some others too, but that is one area in particular where I see a real, um, a real dearth and something that reflect us in particular is really actively addressing. Well, you know, of course, wealthy people can run and they obviously they will and probably will always be in office. But I think, you know, the point that you and I are making is that with those diverse backgrounds, it's easier for someone like, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Cori Bush to to understand why we need a $15 minimum wage, just to use an example, across the board. And they also understand that. And I think you and I talked about this before, or I've talked about it generally before, that, you know, minimum wage isn't just for teenagers anymore, right? You've got like families who are trying to live on minimum wage. And you can only understand that if you are from a certain background. Exactly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you know this, I, I've never spoken to her before, but Cori Bush, how did she even overcome that? I mean, how does someone who isn't wealthy raise enough money to win a race in such a competitive field? You know, and, and one, well, I, I'll answer that in one second. And what I also want to highlight about Cori Bush, which is amazing, is that this is her second time, right? So there's also this story here of a lot of time to get women to run for office in their first place. It takes a lot of encouraging, a lot of support, you know, and, and we've seen the studies where this out that you have to ask a woman to run multiple times for office. And each time she'll say, well, she's not qualified enough. She doesn't have enough of the experience. And with a man, you know, maybe it's that first, maybe even second time. And he's already, you know, out knocking on doors, right? Right? So the fact that um, she ran the first time, but then lost and ran again, that now that for me is a success, right? Because that's where we want to get women generally to run again and run again. With respect to the success of her campaign, I mean, obviously she has, you know, deep roots in the community. So it was very much a community-based and a community-led campaign. So I think the other story in that, Jennifer, is this notion or idea that in order to be successful as a candidate, you have to have this lofty career or this lofty background or have friends with lots of money. Um, and, and, and no doubt that that can and does help in some ways. But there are also the stories of the Cory Bushes out there that just have, you know, deep roots and deep connections in the communities and, you know, run community-led campaigns and they're successful as well. So to step back and sort of just to look at that analytically, what happened there, I think there's a lot of stories that come out of her success. But one of the stories is that women shouldn't sell themselves short. Um, women should think again before counting themselves out. And they should most certainly think twice before assuming that their network and their community isn't enough to, to get them there, right? I mean, I appreciate the work that Reflect Us does and other organizations like yours, but is this something that should be or can be tackled with legislation? Do you know what I mean? It feels like there's something that our government should do to make the playing field fairer for women like Cori Bush or any woman who wants to run for office. And I'm not really sure what that policy would be. That is music to my ears. (laughs) Yes, yes, and yes. So, you know, so when you talk about the women's representation field, which Reflect Us is the coalition in that field, as you know, made up of nine phenomenal organizations like Higher Heights, like Vote Run Lead, She Should Run Ignite, and some other phenomenal ones. There's a lot of different segments in the field, probably two or maybe three of the broad broader ones is leadership development, where, you know, amazing groups like Vote Run Lead, who's a part of our coalition, you know, train women, be it for a weekend, be it for a month, be it for a year-long fellowship. We're training you on everything from campaign financing to building, you know, your your campaign staff to public speaking. Then you have the campaign schools, which do an amazing job. So you have the Yale Campaign School, which is the first one, sort of the, the you know, the sort of the premier one and being the first one. You have LBJ Campaign School down in Austin, do a phenomenal jobs where they take women for a finite amount of time and kind of similarly sort of 
train them and support them. But then you have those folks who are doing what we call systems change. And they're saying, well, yes, women do need to be developed in a certain way. Um, training, you know, is good for anyone. So yes, let's do it. Um, let's continue to do that because that's very important. Let's create these pathways and these pipelines. So certainly, certainly that work is important and it shouldn't stop. It should be encouraged and supported. But then let's also step back and let's look at our systems too, because regardless of the amount of trainings one can do, if the system has just some flaws in it inherently, it just makes it that much more difficult, right? So you have amazing organizations like Represent Women that's a part of our coalition that does just that, right? So she's looking at the founder, Cynthia Terrell. She's looking at, you know, models in other countries. How have they been able to get greater gender parity in their political leadership? What have they done? She's looked at models in other, you know, states and other um, counties and other jurisdictions in this country. And what have they been able to do, right? And so there is some work coming out of that. Vote Mama, another excellent organization, um, as an example, has a whole legislative campaign strategy with others around childcare. So what I mean by that, one of the big systemic barriers for women running for office is that currently in um, the majority of states, if you raise campaign funding, no matter what that dollar amount is, how large or how small, you can't use it for childcare. So if you think about just the amount of time it takes to run for office, and if one has children, one needs to have someone caring for their for those children, and then how expensive childcare is, the fact that childcare is not covered, it's going to um, inevitably disadvantage women in particular um, to run for office and dissuade them to run for office. So that's just sort of one of the examples of the legislative pieces we're looking at. There's quite a few others, and some have been introduced or beginning to be introduced in Congress. So thankfully, folks are really beginning to take this issue seriously, to realize that it is an issue, it is a concern, I would even say it is a crisis in our democracy. And now let's think holistically about how do we address it from the leadership development, which is important, from the campaign schools, which were vitally important. I mean, they were the first ones getting women elected, you know, decades ago, but as well as the systems change as well. You know, it's interesting that you bring up childcare because, you know, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, we're in a really interesting time right now politically, you know, just the, yeah. the political climate, you know, the insurrection and, you know, just the, everything that's happening right now, right? Mm-hmm. And typically what happens historically is that women or any person in a marginalized group, people of color, when they are the target of those political times, they're usually the ones who are more energized, right, to take up leadership positions. And I think we saw that in 2018. And, and like now during the pandemic, what's been on everyone's mind is this kind of childcare crisis because yeah. kids just aren't in school. And I just don't think that we're, we're going to see that historical surge of women running because they're at home because their kids are not in school. And I was just wondering, am I, am I being too pessimistic about that? Or do you think that the pandemic and the child care crisis will keep more women from running for office in 2022 and, you know, the years following that? You know, that, that, that's such an astute point you've made. Um, there was just an article, I believe it was um, out of the New York Times, but don't quote me, that talked about um, with respect to COVID and the pandemic that you really can't call it a, a recession, but they're calling it a C-session just because women are um, just disproportionately impacted in terms of job loss during um, COVID, but also those who, who left the, the job market because they had to take care of kids at home. So you're absolutely right that this pandemic has been, the brunt of it has been borne by women. Um, the impacts of it, although we all have been affected by it, but the um, the end, the deep, deep impacts have been disproportionately experienced by women. And I think that's going to be across the board. And I think that as Congress, and this does go back into the systems change we just talked about, as Congress thinks about the recovery and what the recovery looks like and what kind of a society we look like coming out of this. Any recovery measures has to be women-led and has to have women at the center. 
because they've just been so, you know, in a lot of ways um, decimated by um, COVID, but not just them, but families as well, right? So I, I will lead with that. In terms of women running for office, Funny enough, we're seeing the exact opposite. Um, what we're seeing out there is that because there, there, there was a less than desirable response to the pandemic by leaders, especially early on, that gave a lot of women the, the chutzpah, as I would say, and the encouragement to run for office. So Reflect Us did, um, we did this amazing piece called Running for Office in the Time of COVID and highlighted women across the country running for offices, local, statewide, a couple national, and their thing was, I never thought I would run for office until the pandemic hit. And when I saw just sort of the lack of response or the failure of government, I knew that I could do better. And that gave me the encouragement and the push that I needed to run for office. So what I think has happened is the door has swung open, hugely so for women. And I think not only did they run for office as a result of COVID, but they were successful. And so I think in a lot of ways that genie is now out of the bottle and I don't see less women running now. I think women are so propelled and then in seeing the successes that their sisters are having are going to be more propelled and you're going to see more women running. Yeah. You know, I want to want to go back to Kamala Harris for a moment because, you know, I mean, that would be the biggest win because I think everyone's kind of expecting oh that she God. will run for president. I mean, I think that's my assumption. But, you know, yeah. given, you know, what we've just talked about, about the challenges for women generally, especially for women of color. And, you know, I'm also thinking about those confirmation hearings, you know, the the, mm -hmm. the roadblocks that Deb Holland has faced and Neera mm -hmm. Tanden, you know, mm -hmm. regardless of how you feel about them, you know, there's clearly some misogyny going on there and some mm -hmm. racism and in relation to their being held to a different standard. Right. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. makes me worry for a future, you know, of a woman becoming president, in particular, a woman of color. Do you have those yeah. same worries? You know, so the Barbara Lee Foundation just produced this amazing report that talks about that very thing. And I believe it's entitled Sexism on the Campaign Trail. And then our coalition member, She Should Run, has um, similar, similarly had um, some articles and some pieces about that. I think that that is the, the underbelly of women campaigning that um, doesn't get talked about, partly because there hasn't been a critical mass of them running. So a lot of them are feeling this in isolation, right? Um, but now that you have somewhat of a critical mass, stories are being told or being shared. I think also because there are more women running, and in particular, some of these campaigns are very high profile, the press is more attuned to it, right? And so they're paying more attention to it. So yes, I do think that there is definitely sexism and racism and other isms with respect to women when they run for office that men don't face. And I think that's something that we as a society, A, need to be very aware of. And then I think we have to sort of hold people accountable, right? For those, be they campaign aides or, you know, uh, an opponent's campaign team, like we have to start holding each and the press itself, we have to start holding each other accountable for that. And I think the other question was, do I think that will dissuade women from running? Is that was that the other question? Just specifically thinking about, you know, for the presidency, which is, the, you know, the natural next step, you know, what happened in 2016 and, you know, seeing Kamala Harris just, you know, one step away from that, you know, I specifically, know. you know, how do you think the climate will affect a successful run for a woman for president, a woman of color? I know. Well, you know, I, I can't speak to how the climate will impact her campaign. Now, I'm not sure if that's the question, but if the question is, will the climate dissuade her from running? I say, heck no. <laughs> I, I, I doubt it. I mean, look, she's run for president for the presidency before, as has as have other women. She's been there. She knows what that feels like. She is now 
in the second highest office in the land. Um, she was a prosecutor in California as well as a senator. So she's experienced quite a lot already, right? So would she back away from running for the highest office of the land? And she's quite capable and she's right there because of this. I say no. But what I do think needs to happen, and this is, you know, outside of whether or not she wins, because there's a whole nother, you know, set of factors in that, right? It has nothing to do with, you know, the sexism and racism on the campaign trail. But what I do think needs to happen, and I'll reiterate it, is that, you know, the, the American public and those of us in this work that care about a representative democracy, we need to be on the front lines with her. So, for instance, when she was running for VP, you had groups like Higher Heights, one of our coalition members, who were very, very on the front lines about, hey, listen, we're watching how you how you speak about her. We're watching those ads. We're watching those, you know, innuendos that you're making, and we're calling you out on that. And a lot of that happened. I mean, Glenda Carr, the CEO and founder, co-founder of Higher Heights, I mean, she stayed on the news channels talking about that very thing, as did others, right? And so I think it's going to require that. So it's going to require, you know, uh, Vice President Harrison's team doing what they do, but it's also going to require us as citizens and as civil society also making sure that we do what we need to do in those moments as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think um, VP Harris would be the first person to say like, no, heck no, I'm not going to be kept from running. If I if right. this is something that I want to do, I'm going to do it. She'd be the first person to say, and she'd say, I'm going to win too. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, but but you're right. And you actually answered the question that I didn't ask, but that, that I was thinking that, you know, what can we do? And I think that you're absolutely right mm-hmm. that, you know, as supporters of, you know, of hers and as people who you know want to see more women and more representation in federal government specifically, that just, you know, keeping our eyes on the media, keeping our eyes on the way that we talk about women in leadership mm-hmm. and, you know, correcting it. You know, we have to create, it. yeah, we have to create the landscape that they run in, right, to help them. Exactly. And I'll say that this in this issue, it runs across party lines. We had a, a wonderful woman out in Texas. She's a Republican GOP, um, Genevieve Collins, and she ran and, and she lost her election this time around. But when we spoke to her, she says, you, you, you won't you won't believe how many times when I'm on the campaign trail. They're saying to me, why aren't you married? Where's your husband? And so it's those subtle things that happen and it it becomes issues that women just because they're women face when they're running for office. Um, we're going to be having um, a whole series around this. We're doing some um, some some op eds around this and some blog posts around this. We reflect us because we see this being, you know, a really big issue that we don't want it to go away. We don't want the public to stop thinking about that, because as soon as the public becomes desensitized to it, then it impacts women campaigns all the more in a very negative way. Do you have any upcoming events? I know you have something in March that you want to talk about, and I'm really excited about it. Can you tell the listeners about it? Yes, I am super excited about it as well. So on March 18th at 6 p.m. Eastern, we're having a conversation with congressional leaders. Um, It's a conversation on women's political leadership, the path forward. Um, We have some pretty esteemed um, congressional leaders, including Marilyn Strickland, as well as um, some other surprises. It's going to be co-hosted by Comcast NBC Universal. Yang will be our um, moderator. And we're just looking forward to a very wonderful national conversation with our elected officials, both those on the right and those on the left, those strong women who have, against a lot of odds and adversity, made it to these political leadership positions in Congress and have us all talk about, okay, let's breathe. We had a good November, but we know that this is just the, the beginning. There is so much work 
work that needs to be done and how do we get there. So we are really, really looking forward to that. Um, your listeners can go to our website, um, reflect.us, right there on our homepage. They can register for the event and be a part of the conversation. And we would absolutely love to have them there. Yes, I'm so excited. And send me an email. Make sure that I know yes. <laughs> so I can push it as well, you know, because I'm going to be there. Okay, no, okay. Well, I certainly will. Well, thank you so much. We would love to. Well, of course, we would love to have you. Hopefully you got your invitation, but I'll make sure that it's uh, that it's in the email if you haven't. Well, Tiffany Gardner, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for all of your, your good work. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to be on the electorate. And thanks for all that you're doing.